The reading today is taken from John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone... Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filmed... So... As I said, we're working through John's Gospel. Um, we started just after Pentecost, and um, we are now chapter 2. Last week, we saw that there were five people who had decided that they wanted to spend time with Jesus. Two of them were brought by their friends. One of those was a man called Nathaniel. Now, he was really skeptical when Philip told him that he had found the Messiah. But it was only when he met Jesus that he realized it was true. And at that time, Jesus said in John chapter 1, verses 50 to 51, he says this, You believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, but you'll see greater things than that. And then he added, Very truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A number of things that we need to be aware of in the passage that we read today. We've moved from John the Baptist to Jesus' best friend who wrote this story. John. And John is really into things that are symbolic. So we need to kind of keep that in mind as we read through the stories that are here. And this particular story is full of symbolism. He sets up signposts which take us through the whole of his story of Jesus. And he even tells us that he's giving us a clue to the truth about Jesus. So at the end of the reading day, in, uh, verse 11, he says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Well, if it's the first of the signs, we have to assume there are more. Or it would be the sign. So as we look through, there are more signs coming up in the next weeks and months. He gives, he's a wee starter for ten, another one in chapter four, where he heals the son of a royal official. But these signs, these clues... Are, are occasions when it seems that Jesus did what he had promised 
to Nathaniel. There are moments when people uh, who are watching on with a bit of faith see something of heaven opening and they see the transforming power of God bursting into the world. And I think that for John, that is the most important thing that he wants to say in his story. With Jesus, the life of heaven comes to earth. In the very first few verses, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, he became a human being. And he made his home among us. This is not really uh, a story of an unfortunate family at a wedding. It's about transformation. It's about the different dimension of reality that comes into being when Jesus is present and where people do what Jesus tells them to do. For John, this is the essence of discipleship. It's the essence of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You can't be a follower of Jesus if you don't do what he says. His mother, as Julie was saying, tells the servants to do whatever Jesus says, and they do it. In chapter 4, the royal official comes looking for Jesus, and, and Jesus tells him to go home. He's got no idea if... if what he's come for is going to come to pass. But when he got home, he discovered that his child had been healed. We are told he took Jesus at his word. And that's simply a reminder to us that when we take Jesus at his word, amazing things can happen. This story today is the first of two occasions that we meet Jesus' mother in the gospel. The other is at the cross. So right at the beginning and right at the end. And I think there's a significance there in explaining the kind of offhand way in which Jesus responds to his mother in verse 4. When, when he says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour's not yet come. And as we go through the story, there will be lots of other references to his hour as we go through until at last his time does come and his glory is finally and fully revealed on the cross and resurrection. But for the moment, Jesus is setting up a paradox showing that actually Jesus is, is about his father's work. He says that he has come to do the things that the father has told him to do. And yet, he loves his mother. And so he also subjugates himself and does the very thing that his mother has asked him to do. There's something in the heart of God that responds to a cry for help. The cross for John is that ultimate moment when heaven and earth meet. This is when it takes faith to see glory hidden in shame. The creative word present and dying as a human being. And so John places Mary at the beginning and at the end of the revelation of the glory of Jesus. And I wonder if you noticed how the reading started and if there's maybe any significance in how it started today. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana 
in Galilee. On the third day, the third day, that kind of rings a bell somewhere. The third day. Mm, I'm sure I've heard that before. Even here, John is pointing to future events that are coming in his story. On the third day, water was turned into wine. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, the disciples' despair and fear were turned to joy and to hope. Maybe today, you need a third day experience of Jesus. Maybe you've not yet believed that Jesus can make a difference in your life. And if so, if that's you, I've I've got a little book here that I, I would love to give you. Here's one I prepared earlier. And there's loads of them. I don't just have the one. It's a try praying book. It's designed specifically for people who don't have faith. And later this year, we're going to have a a time of giving them out. The idea is that you take it and you work through it. There's, There's a day a week, seven days worth, encouraging you to pray, even if you don't know God. And the number of people who don't know God and pray is incredible. We've got a little box outside the church on the railings, and we're constantly having to fill it up because people walking by are taking the little books. And hopefully, they are trying prayer and discovering that God answers prayer. So my challenge to you is to take that and to use it for a week, to pray every day for a week and ask Jesus if he is real and see what happens. Maybe you already know Jesus, but you've not done something that he's asked you to do. And you know fine well that you've not done the thing that he has asked you to do. And you're wondering why life seems to be a struggle. Now, life is not necessarily a struggle because you've not been uh, obedient. Sometimes that just happens. But maybe it is because he's asked you to do something and you've said no. And the thing is that in this story, the miracle happened when the people did what Jesus told them to do. And maybe it's as simple as you need to do that too. The feast in itself is a symbol of the great heavenly feast that's in store for God's people. The water jars were used for Jewish purification rites, and they're meant for washing dusty hands and feet when people arrived. And so here John is suggesting that the water of the one age must be replaced by the wine of another. The age inaugurated by Jesus has come and it changes everything. There's also the suggestion that Jesus is going to bring purification to Israel and to the world in a new and different way. In those days, a wedding in a small village would likely have involved most of the people in the village and even from further afield. And it lasted for days. That's maybe why Mary and Jesus were invited. Now, running out of wine was a disaster. I mean, a disaster. And the family would have had to live with the shame for years to come. It would have been considered a really bad start to their marriage. And so here's an example of the, the strange compassion that Jesus shows to people who are in need and how he meets those needs often in really unexpected ways. 
The, transfer, the transformation from water to wine is, of course, meant to symbolize the effect that Jesus can have on the life of an individual. And he still has that effect on the life of individuals across the world. He came, as John tells us later, that we, you and I, even today, can have life in all its fullness. So this also is a story, a kind of interpretation of the hoped-for final age. For John, his is the end age, because the Messiah has come. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Things things are coming to an end. Here we are 2,000 years later. No, it wasn't quite as simple as that. But he says, this is the end of time. And today we tend to uh, relegate the end age as something that's going to happen away in the future, long after we are dead and gone. We don't expect it to happen in our lifetime. So placing the last age in the middle of our lives as John does is actually a real challenge. It begs the question of my life and yours. Is it a life which puts up with what is effectively the pallid water of the world or revels in the beautiful wine of the kingdom of God? I want to read a reflection about that couple who were married that day in Cana in Galilee. I would like to think there was some wine left over. I mean, Jesus supplied enough. John tells us there were six stone water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Well, if three of them held 20 gallons, three times 20 is 60. And if three of them held 30, three times 30 is 90. 60 gallons plus 90 gallons equals 150 gallons a hundred and fifty gallons. That's quite a lot of wine. Especially since they'd already polished off the initial supply. Surely one twenty-gallon jar would have sufficed. But no, Jesus is extravagant, wildly extravagant. So it's not unreasonable to believe that there was some wine left over. And I would like to think that when the celebration was over and the couple had left and the guests had left, that some friend or family member poured that wine that remained into smaller containers and corked them. So that when the couple returned, they were presented with several crates of that amazing wine. I picture the couple delighted, smiling to think that on their meager budget of newlyweds, they can enjoy such a heavenly vintage with their low-cost supper. And the way of eager young couples, they don't plan very well at first. So that at the end of two or three years, they realize that extravagant as Jesus was, they will someday run out. And so they begin to save the wine for special occasions bringing it out on the anniversary or the, the birth and dedication of a child at family reunions on high holy days that feature feasting and drinking. And every time they taste the wine, they relive their wedding day. And they recall how at the first sip of Jesus' wine, they had looked at each other with eyes that shone with a love whose intensity caught even them by surprise. And so... The years pass until they are an old couple. 
keenly aware that all flesh is grass, springing up in youth and then quickly fading. I picture the old couple on a chilly night. She's in front of the fire, trying to warm her feet and hands, for they're always cold now. He pauses, coming into the room, where she sits on a bench, pulled right up to the fire. He studies her in the firelight, the shape of her forehead, the deep creases in her face, the lips that he has kissed 10,000 times. And all of a sudden, with a prompting that he can't explain, he blurts out, honey. And at first she doesn't hear him. So he calls out again, honey. And she slowly looks up and he says, what if we finish the wine tonight? The rabbi's wine, there's only one small bottle left. It might warm you up a bit. Ah, sure, she says, that would be good. So he goes and he gets the wine and he brings it back to the fire with the only clean cup that he can find. He sets it down and he uncorks the wine, speculating, I wonder if it'll still be good after all these years. Hmm, always has been, she says. The rabbi's wine's never gone bad. It's as amazing as the day and the way that he provided it. And so the husband pours the first serving and hands his wife the cup. And she sips and hands it to him. And they look at each other and nod their agreement. The wine is as rich as the day they were married. They drink it really slowly. And as they drink, they start to tell stories. She says, I remember when Sarah was born, you'd have thought that nobody had ever been a father before. The way you carried on, you called in the whole neighborhood and they drank an entire crate of the wine as if it was our wedding all over again. Well, you did just the same when Benjamin and Rebecca bought home the first grandchild. She laughed, a hearty laugh. I did, didn't I? These were good times. Good enough to want them never to stop. He pours some more wine. And they each take a sip. And he stirs the fire and they sit absorbed in the flame. And she sees him out of the corner of her eye and notices he's trying to hold back tears. She knows what he's thinking. He's remembering when their third child died, been terribly sick. They'd tried everything, but he died anyway. And all she could pray for weeks on end was, my God, why have you forsaken us? They were both distraught. And God didn't seem to answer. They didn't know what to do but to blame the other one. One evening he came home and she had supper ready and they set things out on the table without saying a single word, going through the motions that had become rituals of habit, the only thing holding them together day by day now. And when they sat down, they realized that she'd not brought water from the well and he had not brought wine from the market. And so he got up and he found one of the bottles of wine from their wedding. Might as well open it now. No sense in saving it for special occasions anymore. And so he opened it. And he poured some wine for each of them. 
And when the wine touched their lips, they tasted grace in their hearts. And they broke down and they sobbed together. The grief of their loss never went away. How could it? But the strength to carry the grief together, that, that was what the wine of Jesus gave them. And now sitting here in front of the fire, he turns to look at her and hearing him move, she turns towards him and they look at each other and she takes his hand and says, I know. I know. And he's silent. And he holds the bottle upside down over the chalice. There are the last few drops and he hands the chalice to her. Here, you finish it. And she takes the smallest sip and hands it back to him, pointing out that there's still the tiniest little bit at the bottom. And he puts the brim to his lips and he throws back his head, holding the cup straight over him. And slowly he brings it down and holds it between them. That's it, he says, with a voice that sounds both satisfied and sad. It's all gone. None to pass on to the children or the grandchildren now. Just the story of our wedding at Cana and the rabbi who blessed us with wine. Just a story. But no wine. Not to worry, responds his wife. Not to worry. As long as people come to his table, there'll be more. You see, that's the thing with Jesus. Just when you think you've gotten pegged, there's more. There's more grace, more compassion, more mercy. Unexpected solutions to problems and an abundance of life. Amen.